So, what are we going to do today? We're going to look at the passage right there in front of us. At some point, I'm going to get the, um, I'm going to get the iPad out uh, as the whiteboard. We're going to look at the ways in which we can respond to God's Word today. But really what I want to do today is to begin a two-part series this week and next week, really engaging with some of the great and significant things that are happening in our day. It's impossible for us not to notice the movements for social change, the movements for social justice, the movements for, for transformation in our society. And wherever you are in terms of how you understand people should be acting and reacting to this call for change, I think that there are some biblical principles that we find in this passage that we're going to look at today and the passage that we're going to look at next week that help us navigate an understanding of what it is that God is saying to us in this important time. So let's read together from God's Word and let's read from Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now Jesus makes it absolutely clear what it is that he's saying by his summary at the end. He's talking about people exalting or humbling themselves. And it's quite clear from Luke's introduction to the parable as to where it is that we're supposed to go for an interpretation of this parable. To some who were confident of their own righteousness. The word righteousness there really could be, could be easily translated as the word innocent. For those people who believe that they're innocent in relation to whatever charge, whatever, whatever malady that, they, that, that other people may believe exist, whatever's going on, to the people who believe that they're innocent and who look down on others who they assume are not innocent, Jesus told this parable. So this is tremendously important that we get hold of this this morning, because at the heart of what this parable is about is the understanding of what it means 
to live with an attitude of superiority. Superiority, according to Webster's Dictionary, can be defined in two ways. Either as a defensive posture in relation to actual feelings of inferiority. And so you, you posture your, your superiority over other people, over other circumstances, over other things, because you believe actually in your heart that you're inferior to other people. And so the only way that you can compensate for this feeling of inferiority is that you place superiority in the position of your inferiority so as to not feel like that. So that's the first and perhaps the most common expression of superiority. The second kind of superiority, according to Webster's dictionary, is a superiority that is based on an actual belief that you're better than other people. So superiority is at the very heart of what it is that Jesus is addressing in this parable. There's the Pharisee who clearly believes that he's not only innocent of charges that might be made against other people, he's not only innocent, but he is superior at minimum to this man over here who is the worst kind of scoundrel. A person who manipulates and who, who dominates and who uses his position to extract money from his own people. A man who's caught up in organized crime. A man whose who's loyalty to his own people, to his own heritage and to his own history has been sullied by his behavior. This man is somebody who is inferior to the Pharisee from the Pharisee's point of view. And he prays like that. He prays about himself, Jesus says. He doesn't pray to God. He prays about himself. I thank you that I'm not like other men. It's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, there is a story, of course, of the, um, of the Sunday school teacher who was teaching her class. And she, uh, she said, now, you know, children, obviously the Pharisee was thinking of himself as better than the tax collector. And so we, we really mustn't do that, children, okay? Everybody get it? And the children, yeah, okay. Okay, good. Well, let's pray and let's thank God that we're not like the Pharisee. And the thing is, you see, that you're laughing because you're glad you're not like the teacher. <laughs> and I'm laughing because I'm glad I'm not like you. <laughs> you see, this tendency within us, this, this, this attitude, this posture, this stance within us that is finding ways, perhaps through comparison, secretly calculated in our minds, perhaps through conversation, perhaps through 
our inbuilt, ingrained behavior is common to everyone. Superiority is not something simply found in the religious elite, but attitudes of superiority are found in all of us. And here, as Sally and I have become Americans, we have noticed that attitudes of superiority are just as common here as they are in our homeland. Now, there are all kinds of reasons why we develop these attitudes, why we develop these behaviors. As I've said before, probably all of us got dropped on our head as babies at some point. At some point, something's happened in our past that has led us to think and behave the way that we do. And so, individually, there may be all kinds of reasons why it is that perhaps you feel inferior to other people, and it may be that your parents made you feel that way. There could be all kinds of reasons why you think you're better than other people, and it could be that the people around you as you were being raised taught you that that was the case. And so there are particular and personal stories that reflect the the development of the attitude of superiority that I have and that you have. But there are cultural stories, long histories, that have ingrained and developed these ways of thinking, these attitudes, these postures, these orientations. And as I've looked into this, I've discovered the blame is with the British. <laughs> the blame is with the people of my homeland. In the early part of the 17th century, James I of England, who was James VI of Scotland, Scotland and England kind of got it together. He began to see opportunities, or at least his courtiers began to see opportunities, in what was considered by everyone to be the ends of the earth. It was this new world that had been apparently discovered by European pioneers. Of course, it had been discovered long before that, but, but the Europeans with their Eurocentric worldview believed that somehow they had discovered this place and therefore had the right to colonize. And so James began to think about how to do that. Now, he had another problem at the same time, and that was that the people of his homeland, Scotland, were not particularly enthusiastic about the way that things had worked out in the economic life of Great Britain. The Scotsmen of the border countries were poor beyond measure. And the only way that they could imagine how they could survive was to rustle the sheep of the Englishmen just over the border. Now, this caused all kinds of consternation within the nation. And so, eventually, the solution was this, that we'll take all of those people from the borderlands 
and will send them to Ireland. And so they started what was called the Ulster Plantation. And in 1615, the Londonderry Plantation was, was founded. And to some success and some failure, they continued over the next few generations to attempt to make something work. But the reality was that within a generation, many of those people who had been planted in this new territory were not able to survive. From their point of view, fortunately for them, a whole group of Puritans in 1620 moved over to the New World and landed at a place called Plymouth Rock. And so there appeared to be opportunities that were available to them in this new world that, that perhaps could change their circumstances. And so over a period of about 100 years, people moved from the islands of Great Britain to the new world in the West. And those two... Those, those people who came to the West from the islands of Great Britain basically fell into two categories. They either believed that they were better than everybody else, or they pretended that they were better than everybody else because they were told from the very beginning that they were inferior, inferior classes of people. One group of people came and they settled in the Northeast and they have their writings available to us. We have the amazing exploits of, of some of these Puritans who believe that they come to do mission amongst the native population. But it's quite obvious, even godly men like John Eliot, the apostle to the North American Indians, it's quite obvious that the way that they understood their mission was to civilize a group of people who were inferior to the group of people to which they belonged. There was an implicit superiority in the way that they operated. And so even in their mission, even in their kindness, even in their generosity, there was this sense that they were lifting up inferior peoples to a level that was almost equal with the superiority of the European settlers. And they shared the good news of Jesus from that perspective. Now, it wouldn't be the last time that missionaries would have that attitude towards the people that they were seeking to reach. There were whole philosophies that developed a hundred years later in the 19th century. Ideas that would be described as social Darwinism that suggested that in the long march towards European civilization, the peoples of the world were kind of gathered on a staircase that eventually reached the position of people who have an accent like me.
And when you read it, this pseudo-scientific theory, it reads as foolishness and idiocy when we read it today. But nevertheless, it was the way in which people thought. And according to the great historian of the, of the, of the British American history, that first 150 years from the first settlements in Jamestown all the way through to the Declaration of Independence, that, that great history that has been poured over by many, but, but in the seminal work of Albion's Seed by David Hackett Fisher, he suggests this, that those first 150 years of American colonization, all of the cultural mores of today were planted in American soil. And the reason that we think the way we do now is because that's the way that they thought then. And it's very, very hard to argue against it. What about those Scots-Irish? Well, the Scots-Irish, they eventually started getting here through the, the ports of New York and Boston. Didn't like New York and Boston. They'd heard that there were places that looked like Scotland and Ireland. And so they went to look for them, and they found the mountains of the Appalachians. The Blue Ridge Mountains, the Smokies, whatever you want to call them, it doesn't matter, it's the same range of mountains. And when you go there, and if you've been to Scotland, and if you've been to Ireland, it just feels so familiar. Sally and I were in Kentucky this last week. I mean, seriously, we would wake up some mornings and you'd look out of the cabin door and you'd think, this is the way that it used to be in our homeland. And so they brought all of their folkways with them, their music. They brought their distilling capacities They brought the way that they thought, and they brought the way that they behaved, and they had been taught for hundreds of years that they were inferior to the upper classes of the British Isles. The British people were divided into a class system, and those that made their way here from the island of Ireland who were largely of Scottish origin, those Scots-Irish had been taught that they were inferior individuals. And so if they were ever to rise above this sense of inferiority, the only way that they could do it was to develop a sense of superiority over, well, I don't know, at least the Hatfields, if you're a McCoy, or the McCoys if you're a Hatfield. You see, even in the granular details of our story as Americans, if I'm allowed to say such a bold statement about Sally and I, 
Even in the granular details. We have this story of superiority and inferiority. And if you've been trained your whole life to feel inferior, and then someone gives you the opportunity to find a group of people who are less than yourself, you might just leap at it. And so, you know it as well as I do. All of the great statements of constitutional law, Bill of Rights, declarations of independence, were a description for the life of the European colonists. Colonists? It's hard to get those the right way around, isn't it? But didn't include enslaved Africans and didn't include North American natives. So if you're white-skinned, there's a presumption of equality because we've come from a place where inequality is so rampant that we need to express that as our determined understanding. But we're not sure about these other groups of people and so, and so they were placed in a position of inferiority. And right there is the crux of the problem that we face today. So what's the answer? Now you might take issue with some of my historical observations, it's fine. The books that I'm talking about are so thick, it'll take you three months to decide whether you want to have an argument with me. But the reality is, is that we have planted into American soil an understanding of superiority and inferiority that goes back to my homeland. And I think it would be difficult for any cultural anthropologist to argue the opposite. But what's the answer? Maybe like me, you've felt challenged to think again what this means. How can we as Christians respond? Because clearly, we would never want to be positioned with racist institutions or racist attitudes that, that say that people are not equal. And yet clearly, somehow, by, by ignorance, by just tacit approval, perhaps, perhaps I, I'm not saying you, perhaps I have colluded with a system that has allowed an understanding of superiority and inferiority to exist. What's the answer? Sally and I came back from Kentucky and spent the night in Cincinnati. Lovely hotel in the center there. The, the center of town is really quiet right now. But we were glad to see that the 
the Museum of Contemporary Art was open that day, and so we joined and we went in. And in there was uh, an, an installation by an urban artist from Portugal, a man who calls himself Vils. And um, he, he, did, uh, he did some amazing things, and, and one of them I'd like to show you now. He put a charge into the wall and revealed what was underneath the surface. What we need is an understanding of our identity, an understanding of each person's identity that may be hidden by by the accretions of time that may be hidden by the mores of our society. They may be hidden by the influences and attitudes of our culture. But underneath, perhaps through the explosive moments that we're going through, we expose our identity. And as that happens in the heart of a believer. Something important is revealed. Our identity and the desired identity by God for each of his children is that they are children. Of God. Children of God means there's no superiority or inferiority. It simply means equality. It can't mean anything else. 
And as we've looked at before, our Father confers upon us an identity which, on the basis of that identity, we choose to live in obedience. What that all is there, that is the covenant. That's the covenant that God offers us. What does that mean? It means that God offers you and me a relationship where he confers upon us the right, the freedom, the honor to be included in his family as equals. And the shocking thing is this, that our equality does not extend simply to the faces that you see around you, but extends to every human being on the planet because all human beings are either knowing that they are God's children or presumptive children of God who need to hear that that is the message of good news to them. Identity is the very heart of equality. Our identity as children of God will inevitably lead to an absolute commitment to equality. And that absolute commitment to equality will in time, and it may take some time, will in time bring about unity. So do I believe that there is an answer in the gospel for the things that we see around us? Do I think that people need to straighten up and and sort their lives out? Well, I would be a Pharisee if I had that posture. Because immediately I start using language of superiority. Do I look down on the looters? Do I look down on those fragile white people who are constantly defending themselves against charges of racism? Or do I assume that in my personal weakness, I'm equal with everyone? That the things that other people are doing are things that I'm capable of, of course. Because I'm a sinner. Do I believe that in the gospel there is hope and an answer for the social problems and challenges of our day? If I didn't, I'd stop being a Christian. Because what's the point? If the only point is that somehow I feel nice, that God is smiling on me today, 
and there's no actual change that's possible in my life and in the lives of other people and that that change can somehow, like the waters of the ocean, spread throughout the earth. If I didn't believe that, what's the point? If Jesus died simply so that I could manage my sin on a daily basis, then that would be a very, very limited gift of salvation. Of course, it's enormously important that we understand that the thing that separates us from our destiny as God's children is the sin that separates us from Him. And so Jesus had to make a way. But having made a way, are we prepared to walk on the path towards the destiny that Jesus died for? Or are we going to stay on the path and never grow into all that God has given us in the grace of the gospel? The transformation of America begins at Calvary. And it begins with this understanding that those of us who recognize our equality in our sinfulness, who like the tax collector, are not even prepared to lift our eyes toward the mercy seat. Those of us who recognize our equality with the tax collector will realize that there's no one inferior to us. And we're not superior to anyone. We're simply grateful to be given the gift of being the children of the living God. And as children, we look every other person in the eye as an equal. And either as a recipient of the same message that has transformed us, or as one who is a potential recipient of the message that has changed us. Next week, I'm going to look at some of the, if you like, details of what it means to look for reconciliation in these days. But for today, I want us to finish with this knowledge and with this thought. That Jesus decided that he would come for us. And when he came for us, this was his determination. That the Father would look on you and me with equal love with which he looked upon his Son. Jesus came with this determination that when he stepped into this world and won the battle on the cross, represented in his resurrection, 
that you and I would be co-heirs with Christ of his kingdom. Co-heirs with Christ. If Jesus is not superior to us in his attitude towards us, how can we possibly, how can we possibly offer an attitude of superiority to anyone else? Your attitude, your attitude, says Paul, should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant, even unto death on the cross. And Paul says in another place in Romans 8, he says, and because you're children, you're co-heirs, with Christ. It's just amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. It's called good news. And we should willingly share it, should we not? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have a new identity in you. That our identity was once that we were far off, lost, and without hope in the world. And that identity meant that we were described by our condition. Our condition being that of sin meant that we could only be known as sinners. And we thank you, Lord... That in Christ Jesus, you took that identity and buried it in the grave. And that by the precious blood of Jesus, you gave us a new identity that calls us sons and daughters of the living God. And Lord, as Sons and daughters of the living God, we know that there are no attitudes of superiority or inferiority that are appropriate. And so this day, Lord, we repent of our superior attitude towards anyone, towards anyone of any class or color or background, anyone that's done anything that's reprehensible, or sinful Lord we choose not to have an attitude of superiority over them we choose Lord not to have an attitude of inferiority towards anyone even if they tell us that they're better than us even if we've been told by our parents and by our friends Lord we choose not to have an attitude of inferiority this day but we choose this day to receive afresh our identity as sons and daughters. And as sons and daughters, we choose to live in equality 
and to work for equality and to fight for equality and to stand for equality until you, Lord, bring unity. First in the household of God and then in this land. May justice roll like a river, Lord. And may your goodness cover the earth like the waters of the sea. And Lord, may you in our day see fit to do it through us. And we'll give you the glory for it. And all God's people said.